Well, thank you for that warm and surprising introduction. Thank you for this warm introduction to Phoenix. It's always so warm to be here, and I appreciate, appreciate the warmth that I always experience when I'm here, and I just wanted to make that clear. Thank you so much. Um, I am thankful for this opportunity to speak to you. I'm thankful for God's work here in Phoenix and in this area. And I want to begin tonight uh, with um, a bit of a story. This is about Rob. Uh, Rob prayed to receive Christ when he was 17. He had had a few hard months, and at the end of it, he simply felt done in. And to say that he felt that he was at the end of his rope might be a bit too dramatic, but basically that's how he felt. And then Rob met Sarah. Well, he had met her before when he had this summer job, but he'd never really talked to her until that night when he agreed to go to this Christian meeting for students in the area. Uh, Rob had never been much for church. He hadn't been against it, but uh, he wasn't an atheist or anything, but he was simply, he'd never seen much in it. Anyway, a friend in his neighborhood had asked him to go, and he was feeling down. So somewhere there in the back of his mind, he had the idea, maybe hiding out, maybe this will help. So Rob had gone with his friend, Sean, and there he talked to him, uh, and Sarah, she was there too, which was really nice, uh, until almost midnight. And the conversation had started out light, but it had gotten pretty serious when Sean and then Sarah began to share some things that they had gone through recently. And uh, what can I say? I mean, it, it, just, it just got to Rob. He didn't break down or anything, but he just began to open up. He began to be more honest with them, with these two people, than he even usually was with himself. My life just feels out of control. Everything seems to be going wrong. And even the things that aren't just don't seem to matter to me. And that's when he did it. Uh, in five minutes or less, Sarah and Sean had told him about the wonderful life he could have as a Christian, about the free gift of eternal life, of forgiveness for everything that he'd ever done wrong. And he could have that because Jesus had died for him. Well, honestly, it seemed to Rob like the best thing he had heard in a long time. He hadn't gone to church to this Christian meeting looking for anything like that. But as they had been talking, they said this and it all seemed uh, kind of sweet. Just very kind that these two people would sit there and listen to him talk in a way he honestly was not used to opening up and talking to people about this kind of stuff. So when he asked how he could sign up, trying to make, you know, a little light of a very heavy situation, they handed him this little booklet, they opened it up, they showed him this prayer at the back, and uh, they pointed to this paragraph in, in bold print, um, and Sean said, repeat after me, and Rob did. So what happened, Sean would read a line, and then Rob would read the line, and Sean would need, need, read the next line, and then Sean would, uh, Rob would read the next line, and uh, Sean told him he was praying to God. And that was that. So Sean and Sarah told him excitedly when he finished that he was a Christian now. And they were so happy for him. They were welcoming him as a brother now. And they were just effusive. And they said excitedly, you realize that God has promised to forgive anyone who confesses their sin and you've just confessed your sin. 
And Rob had certainly been in his conversation that night. He confessed bad things that he had done and, and he felt bad about them and he really had done them. So he had prayed and, and there it was over and done. He was saved. In the years that followed, Rob lived a pretty upstanding life. By the time Rob was 40, some people even thought of him as a pillar of the church. Always there, active, engaged. He ended up getting involved with the church where the preaching was usually exciting. I mean, engaging preaching was a real priority with this church. Every time they called a new pastor, and they usually got it. The sermons were short and to the point and filled with good stories and memorable anecdotes and moving illustrations. And often they would even begin with a story. <laughs> Rob really loved to listen to them. Now, he would have to confess that anyone cornered him that he didn't really know his Bible very well. He was not a Bible nerd. He just never had been like that. Though he had taught Sunday school for several years, he couldn't really tell you, say, where most of the books in the Bible were or why Exodus was that important or, or what the book of Revelation was about. He had his own ideas about God and he shared these with people, but he didn't really get them very much from the Bible. He imagined the gospel to be pretty straightforward. The offer of God's to forgive our sins if we would just own up to them. Kind of like, here's a sin. Yeah, that one's mine. Yeah, that one's, uh, I, I did that, yeah. Yep, that one's mine. And so if we would just own up to them and ask God to forgive us, then he would. And he knew that Jesus and the cross were important. He couldn't line out to exactly how that all worked out kind of in spiritual mathematics, but he knew it was important. If the truth were known, Rob thought of conversion kind of like the decision to buy a new car or some other momentous decision in your life. It was, it was big, it was a little scary, but it was just something you had to do. Everybody, he thought, should get around to it sometime. And, and you know, sooner be better than later because I mean, you never know. So evangelism to Rob was what like the church staff did. Professional religious people did that kind of thing. Uh, it was also what he had had to do when they had a pastor for a little while who was very big on knocking on doors. And Rob was not a fan of that. And, um, and also this one time when he'd gone as a, on a, as a chaperone on a youth choir trip, uh, and they had tried to answer the questions of some of the boys in the choir who had real questions about being baptized and joining the church, and those were odd conversations for Rob, and he felt a little awkward with them. Honestly, Rob had never joined the church, but most people probably didn't realize that because he was always there. Uh, he would go through periods of more investment and periods of less, and Honestly, he liked it that way. He wanted to be able to pick and choose what he was going to be involved with and when. And joining the church had always seemed to him like writing a blank check to somebody. So he did not want to do that. And then there were those difficulties that had happened a few years back when his daughter in the choir was being taught some things by somebody in the church that he thought were just crazy. And if she had ended up listening to those too much, she could even end up being like a missionary in the Middle East or someplace. So he had told her she couldn't go to choir anymore. She couldn't go to youth group, Bible study, or even church for a while. And he was absent for the better part of a year. But he wasn't worried about it because he knew he believed in once saved, always saved. So there was not going to be a problem from his end. And he knew that he didn't have anything to worry about ultimately. And besides, 
they had a pastor at church that he just didn't get along with very well right then and he knew that he could just wait them out this church was used to just going through pastors so he knew if he could just hang in there uh, the, the new things that this pastor was teaching that bothered him he figured that that would just pass he knew most pastors didn't last that long if he just laid low for a few years the church would get back to its normal self now I could keep going which might be better for a second sermon on a Friday night in the summer but would it surprise you if I told you that Rob wasn't really growing as a Christian more than that that it didn't really bother him that he wasn't growing as a Christian well we've called this conference help me follow Jesus three questions for us tonight I want to spend most of my time on the first one if we do want to grow spiritually as individuals and in our congregations how do we do that so unlike what Josh just did so excellently who preached an expositional sermon which is how I would normally say feed my own congregation on Sunday mornings at a conference like this I more normally just speak right to you I'm just saying like here are some ideas that yes I trust they're biblical but these are like spiritual life hacks okay so here they are that's so that's number one if we do want to grow spiritually as individuals and in our congregations how do we do that number two is growing as a Christian really so important and number three what if we don't so this is our topic for our time together tonight and what we want to say is that a healthy church is one that is characterized by a serious concern for growth in their discipleship of Jesus Christ. A healthy church is one that is characterized by serious concern for growth in our discipleship of Jesus Christ. So how do we grow as Christians? What kind of church will cultivate such discipleship among her members? Even putting the question that way surprises some people. Some people think of their Christian life as their own business, their own sort of private portfolio that they manage. And it's, oh, it's interesting to see how you do this. Maybe I'll learn from that. Oh, you do that. Okay, maybe I'll learn from that. I like this youth group. I like that music. I like this conference, this retreat, this preacher, these books, this author. But I, I'm basically the one managing my own spiritual portfolio. I want you to understand that is not the way God in his word has taught us to think. It's a very modern American way to think, very individualistic. But Jesus set up the local church. And your spiritual life is to be vitally wired in to the life of your local church. I had a friend named John. We'll call him John. Okay, his name was John. I was a student and a university graduate student. He came to be a graduate student. He's a great guy, a lot of scripture memory, a lot of evangelism, parents in missions. He came to the same church that I was at where I was just, uh, I was a member of the church, but he would just come in time for the sermon. And I asked him one day, I said, John, why do you just come in time for the sermon? He said, well, all that earlier stuff, you know, I don't really get that much out of. The earlier stuff, by the way, was scripture reading, prayer, and singing. 
three things commanded in God's word. I understood what he meant. I said, well, well, John, did you ever think of joining the local church? And he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, join the local church? Why would I join the church? He said, look, I know what I'm here to do. If I lock arms with all those people, they're just going to slow me down. Now, I want to put the most charitable construction on this that I can, because this is a godly man. He, I, I knew him. I knew his family. He did love the Lord. He was a, a ferocious evangelist. But I thought he was just badly misinformed at this point. And so I tried to think carefully what to say. I said, well, John, do you realize that if you link arms with all those people, they may well slow you down, but you may help to speed them up? And God may care more about the whole than about your individual performance. Now, friends, I got to tell you, that is just an earth-shattering, world-turning-upside-down thought for a lot of Americans today. American Christians. But I think if you read your Bible, that's the kind of spirituality you get out of it. It isn't just, am I praying longer on average this year each day than I was last year? I'm keeping a graph. Last year, I memorized 2nd and 3rd John. This year, it's going to be 1st John, which is longer. <laughs> no, it's the kind, of, the kind of way we're supposed to live as Christians is going through life with each other in our local church. And, and friends, as, as we know, we were thinking about even in, in Josh's message Every year is not the same in life. You, you may think when you're 21 that like, oh, this year's pretty cool, it's better than last year, and next year's gonna be better, and the year after that, better, and... But I gotta tell you, as somebody who's in his late 50s, yeah, that's not true, no. No, things uh, both figuratively and literally begin to go downhill. And there's lots of stuff that comes along with that. There are new challenges that you begin to face. So, so what I want us to think about when we're thinking about us following Jesus, help me follow Jesus, is I want to scratch out the me and put us and realize that me is intended by God, but that me means in God's mind to find itself in the us of the local church. So if you want to grow as a disciple, and let's just be honest, you and I are both not very good at that. We are, by nature, wrongly loving things of this world, even good things, we will love inordinately. And so God, in his kindness, he gives us a local church that continually is recalibrating us, which is why I think he has us meeting the very beginning of every week together. How do we start out our weeks? With our local church. With all those people who think Jesus got up from the dead, we start out every week with them. That's how we begin, by singing, by reading, by praying, by rejoicing, by fellowship, by we weeping together. We, we reset our heart's values at the beginning of every week around God's word. That's what he's, in his brilliance and his kindness, he's set up for us to do. So what I want to help us to think about tonight are what are some things we should both look for if we're moving or try to cultivate if we're in our local church, if we want to see our local church help us grow as disciples? What, what's a biblical practice of growth? And the first thing I want to encourage you to think about, and this will not surprise you, is a church in which there is expositional preaching. A, a church in which there's exactly what we heard uh, in, at 7 o'clock from Mark chapter 4 where it is God's word that calibrates our church together, where we're listening to God speak to us in his word. 
where we're going where we're going to a church where they go through the word where we we try to listen to all that he wants to say we're not trying to avoid him we're trying to hear him friends i think if you go to a church that's committed to expositional preaching then you are being committed to see god's care and concern throughout the bible in various times of history in various situations and circumstances and I think becoming aware of the beauty of God's word allows you to become more aware of God's care. It allows you to be more easily corrected. It, it helps you to relish the gospel. Honestly, it allows those of you who are members of churches to replace guys like me more easily. Because you realize it's not that it's Josh's church or Rich's church or, or Mark's church or Jono's church. Though in some sense it's fine if people use the language that way. We know what they mean. Can I have the water? Phoenix is also dry. Right there. Just right there. No, it's right by your foot. You just knock them over. Those two right there. Okay, that one. Just pitch it. Just to watch me not catch it. Well done, man. <clears throat> because if you know that you're about gathering around God's word, then who is the mouthpiece is not quite as important. It's not just the super creative guy that's up there who always gets it just right. Well, what you're listening for is God's word. And we're just various mouthpieces through which God speaks his word. I think when you understand the importance of expositional preaching, you come to know more of God and more of his character as you listen to him speak in his word. A second thing is that you want to see and cultivate in your church is a church in which there is biblical theology. And the reason I point that out is because it's not every church that claims they have expositional preaching that actually gets it right. You could have churches that say they do expositional preaching and yet what they expound, what they conclude, what they teach is not correct. I'm not saying they're not sincere. I just think they're sometimes they're wrong. So you want to check to make sure is what they're saying biblical. Am, am I getting the truth about God? Am I getting the truth about us? Am I understanding more of God's concern, of his character, of his care? Am I seeing how God works with people throughout the Old and New Testaments? Am I, am I getting an understanding of the whole thing? Am I seeing kind of where Exodus fits in and how the revelation, revelation is a climax? And, you know, do, do I understand what God is doing in history with his people? Because I think when you do, you, you're more able to trust him. Have you ever noticed how long the Old Testament is? I find the Old Testament personally very, very long. It's just long. I mean, the New Testament, it's short. I can tell a non-Christian to go home this afternoon and read the Gospel of Mark, and it's just 16 what we call chapters, you know. It's like long Hallmark card sizes, each chapter. That we, we can do these things. These are not hard. So when you look at the Old Testament, Christians, especially young Christians, I think sometimes are befuddled. And they go like, what am I to do? All of these weird names, these very long stories. Okay, that's where you need a good pastor. You need a pastor over the years who just helps you walk through the different books, know the history, have a sense of what's going on. If you basically get the fall, the exodus, David, the exile, well, you got the Old Testament. That, that's it. Everything fits in around those things. Okay? It's, it's not rocket science. It's, it's long, it's spectacular, it's glorious, but it's, it's not really obscure in its main message. 
Well, a pastor needs to help you understand that in his preaching. He needs to not just give you a verse-by-verse commentary that presumes a ton of interest on your part, but he needs to help you understand the significance of what that portion of God's Word says. And as he does that, what you'll find, one of the many things you'd find, is how brilliant God is to make the Old Testament so long. Because do you know why that's so brilliant? At least one reason. I'm sure there are an infinite number, but one reason. Because one of the things you and I are not are patient. And what we see in the Old Testament is 2,000 years of God's people waiting on the promise of God to be fulfilled. So when you come to the Gospels and you start seeing people get so excited about John the Baptist, you begin to understand, oh, it's because they've been waiting a really long time. And this guy looks like he might be the Messiah. And then when it's not him, but then Jesus is doing even more miraculous things, more amazing things, there really is this swelling torrent of interest because the people have been waiting for a thousand years since David, almost 2,000 since Abraham. And friends, what you see is not just an interest in history, but you see also in my life. As I wait, it's not unusual. The normal posture of God's people in this world is to wait. The normal posture of God's people in this world, in this life, is to wait. So the Old Testament being very long has a really good reason for being very long. And you know what it shows? That God is always faithful. When he makes a promise in 1500 BC and it's not fulfilled in 1400 BC, he's not unfaithful. Not fulfilled in 1300 BC, well, he's not unfaithful. Not fulfilled in 1000 BC, no, he's right on time. You know, not fulfilled in 500 BC, yeah, he's got it all under control. He knows exactly when he means to fulfill the promises he makes. If your church understands biblical theology, you'll be getting that correct. And you'll be getting that taught clearly. Another thing, a third thing, a church that you're in that you want to encourage is especially in a biblical understanding of the gospel, where you realize the depth of your own needs. Uh, Josh mentioned John Newton. I love John Newton. In my quiet times these days, I hang out with God. I read his word, I pray, and I hang out with John Newton. I'm reading volume four in Banner of Truth's Collected Works, his letters letters to his wife, his poems that he writes, but just moving stuff. Newton, one of the things that I love about Newton that's so helpful is right on the gospel. He understood his depravity and he understood his need for a savior. He didn't just need somebody to pump him up with some good stories or, or give him a lecture with a cool new view of something. He needed to hear about a savior. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, John Newton writes, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. God didn't do that to John Newton's soul because he hated him, but because he loved him. He was driving him to see his love. Friends, if you're clear on the gospel in the local church, you see how fundamentally simple 
Christianity is. You'll be growing in your understanding of what God has done for you and how amazing that is. You'll, when you'll sing the kind of songs that we were singing before we started tonight, your heart will be full of them and encouraged in them. You'll, you'll want gospel-centered songs. Much more I can say on that. A fourth thing, I think you want to understand in your church, and, and if you want to grow as a disciple, you particularly want to understand conversion. <clears throat> Some of you may have been listening to these uh, pastor's talk podcasts I've been doing with Jonathan Lehman. We just started doing them a few weeks, a few months ago maybe. We did another one, our most recent one, yesterday afternoon on this very topic, on conversion. Because as Jonathan and I were talking about it, we realized one thing that's a kind of quiet doctrine that may not be thought of a lot, but that's hugely important, is what it really means in the Bible to be converted. <clears throat> Plus, I think we're in a day and age that's not very friendly to this idea of conversion. Uh, we're about our own identity, exploring who we are, and being true and faithful to that. So this idea that there's fundamentally wrong with us, something wrong with us is just, well, as I think we even saw in some Senate hearings this week, it was extremely offensive uh, to some people that Christians would believe such a thing. That means I think that we who are pastors here must be extremely clear on this. We need to realize our own dependence on God for our Christian life. And when we do, that brings gratitude for ourselves and others, and it brings hope. Uh, we recognize God's fruit in our lives. We realize when we understand the biblical doctrine of conversion more that it's nothing to be proud about. God saves us. You know, again, Jonah 2, salvation is of the Lord. And uh, that's, that's what we who are Christians know. <clears throat> it helps us to understand more what a true Christian is. So you want your church to be very clear on the gospel and very clear on what it means to be converted, which then brings along with it a fifth thing, a clarity on evangelism. And that just makes sense. If you know what the good news is and you know what it means for somebody to be converted, then you'll know the wonderful freedom that helps to bring you in sharing that good news with others. It will encourage a trust in God. It will help you to, to do evangelism in a free and frequent way that will be a blessing to others. And another thing, it will also have a biblical understanding of church membership. Because if you put all this together and you're reading the word and you're getting this from the word, you'll see that God intends us to be committed to each other. And when you join a local church, it helps you to deal with areas of your life that you wouldn't otherwise, especially if they are committed to expositional preaching. It will help you to put flesh on what you say you believe about. I love everybody, okay? How about these 37 people? These specific people. Do you love these people? Yes, I love those people. Do you ever talk to them? You know, do, do you really pray for them? I don't mean just at church when the pastor says, no, do you, do you pray for them? What does love look like when it's dressed up in the flesh of your real life that God knows? See, that's what happens when you commit yourself to the local church. I think it encourages us to see God working in the lives of others on a regular basis. We ourselves enjoy greater accountability. It helps with assurance of salvation. I often describe the local church as an assurance of salvation cooperative. You know, we join together to help each other, encourage each other in the way to make sure that we really are in the way. A seventh thing to point out, I think you want to look for and work for a biblical understanding of church discipline particularly. I think our neglect of this is criminal, spiritually speaking. A careful practice of biblical church discipline helps to flesh out what we mean by holiness 
And brothers and sisters, you realize who it helps most, the person disciplined. How moving was it when, what, three weeks ago now, one member of our church at a members meeting gets up and confesses his sin publicly. Uh, He had gotten a woman who was not his wife pregnant. And in his confession of this, which he came to us about, which he wanted to do, we as the elders did not tell him he needed to do this. He needed to repent. We did not tell him this form of it, but he wanted to share this with the church and ask for their forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, it was a moving evening when that dear brother stood up and shared as he did. He was in tears, he was heartbroken. And it's it's the kind of thing that he had seen us walk through others with. I don't know if you have the idea of church discipline being very negative, but if so, I'm, I'm sorry. Jesus has presented something very good and you've been misinformed about it. It's a wonderful thing and especially for the person who themselves is the focus of any particular act of discipline. But it's also very good for the other Christians sitting there. It acts as a warning about the seriousness of sin. And you realize how then that's good for the church as a whole. It helps the church as a whole be more characterized by holiness. It's honestly, it's good for the non-Christians because it helps to clarify for the non-Christian what we mean when we use the word Christian, what we mean when we use the word gospel or converted. It's good ultimately as it reflects the glory of God. The last thing to bring out about a local church and what we want to see in them, I think, is a biblical understanding of church leadership. We want to understand what it means to have godly leaders in our lives and particularly in our local churches. And I think when we do, it helps us to trust God's authority as we begin to trust others who are caring for us, as we see practical role models. I always go for this to David's last word, 2 Samuel 23. If you don't know these verses, you've got to know these verses, friends. 2 Samuel 23. No, wake up, open your Bibles. 2 Samuel chapter 23, turn there. These are that good, verses 1 to 4. 2 Samuel 23, 1 to 4. Do not be ashamed to use the table of contents. You know, if you've not looked at 2 Samuel recently, it's fine. It's right after 1 Samuel. If you just go to the table of contents, you can find this. It's at the very end of the book. It's chapter 23. It's the first four verses. It's David's final words. Now you realize final words of people are always significant. David, one of the greatest people of the Old Testament, his final words would be especially significant. This is how under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these are recorded. 2 Samuel chapter 23. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel, Right, so that's quite an introduction, so it's really been built up. Now here they are. This is now David speaking. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. All right, so David is making it clear these are not just his words. This is God's Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. Okay, so that's four lines of poetic parallelism, all making the same point, that these words he's about to speak are not his own. These are the words of God. What is it, David, before you expire, What is it? What is it that God has put on your heart? And and here it is, friends. It's very simple, but it's profound, especially in light of Genesis 3 and the terrible abuse of Satan when he has authority. Watch this. 2 Samuel 23 and verse 3 in the middle. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. 
like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Those are verses worth you meditating on. If you're a mother or a father, if you're a coach, if you're a boss, if you're a teacher, if you're an elder or a pastor, if you're an owner, if you're a magistrate, if you're a sheriff, a policeman, a mayor, councilman or woman, you realize how significant authority is. We tend to think of authority as negative because there are so many examples of abuses of it. But friends, as a Christian, your local church needs to be a shining example of the fundamental goodness of authority. In the same way, your home should be an example of the fundamental goodness of authority. As the same way, any place you exercise authority should model God's own life-giving use of authority for others. Uh, Satan's basic lie from the very first sin of Adam has been that God can't really love you if he tells you no. And that eye has, that, that, that error, that sin has ricocheted down human history. It came out of our mouths when we were teenagers. And then in God's loving providence came out of our children's mouths to us. And so it goes on down until Christ's return. Friends, when we abuse authority that we're given, we are sinning most horribly. We are blaspheming God in an unusual way. Well, that's why an abusive husband is such a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, that's why slavery was such an unusually terrible sin. That's why a pastor who would manipulate his people for his own convenience is, is committing such an uh, unutterably un horrible sin. Because when we exercise authority, we're especially standing in the place of God. We're, we're modeling God. And friends, that's supposed to be a good thing. You, you know how in school everybody wanted to be in the class that had the good teacher? Everybody wanted to be on the team with a good coach? In, in business, everybody wants to be in the, in the project where there's the good manager? You know, or, or in the school where there's a good president? I mean, people know good authority when they see it. They like it. They want to be there because it helps them. Good authority helps the people underneath it. That's what it does. That's its nature. Friends, in your local church, do you want to help people follow Jesus? Pray that God give you good leadership. Pray that you're not one of those evil, satanic congregations that is always doubting your elders, gossiping negatively about your pastors, undercutting them anytime they try to exercise authority. Friends, I know that's common in America and it seems safe, but it's very ungodly. Pray that you're not one of those elders or pastors that would ever abuse the sheep for your own good. Both sides of that equation, friends, are important for us to grow as we should. Well, a, a second question. Is spiritual growth really so important? And I'll be quite brief on these last two. I think such a growing church full of growing Christians is the kind of church growth that at least I for one covet as a pastor. It's clear that a healthy church is marked by a pervasive concern with church growth. Not merely growing numbers, but with growing members. So when I talk about the growth of our church, I really can't put down in, in metric form most of the growth I've seen at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. 
I, I can put down some numbers that have changed, and some of those numbers have gotten larger over the last 23 years. But friends, I, I think the most important thing I can do is start telling you about various individuals. It's to tell you what I've seen the Lord do in Isaac's life. You know, what I've seen the Lord do in, in William Wolfe's life. Uh, what I, I've seen the, the Lord do in Rob McCutcheon's life. What I saw the Lord do in Ryan Townsend's life. Uh, I, I could just go on and on. It, it's what, by God's grace, I've seen happen in the life of person after person after person as God pursues them, saves them, grows them up. They move from being baby Christians to being mature Christians. I know that in the church I grew up in, which in many ways was a faithful church, I think growth was seen as an optional extra for the really zealous Christians. Honestly, if you were growing as a Christian, you kind of stuck out. It was a little, little unusual for somebody to be really growing as a Christian. I don't think it's supposed to be that way. I think our churches are supposed to be collections of people that want to be helped in following Jesus. We realize it's a lie to think that our spiritual life, our Christian life, is our own private business. It's personal, that's certainly true, but it's never private. No, not, not the Bible Christianity. You read 1 John, you know, how you live with others. You read James, how you treat others, how you care for others is part of what you mean when you say you love God. It's either true or false based on that. Brothers and sisters, when we are in a church that's composed of growing members, increasing Christ-likeness, who gets the glory? God made it grow, Paul writes to the Corinthians. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. I love Peter's final benediction to those early Christians that he wrote. It was really a prayer couched as an imperative when he tells them, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Friends, we might think that our growth would bring glory to ourselves, but Peter knew better. In 1 Peter 2.12, he writes, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they assure you, accuse you of wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. I think Peter remembered Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. Let your lights shine before men that they may see your good deeds. And surely if they see your good deeds, we're going to fall into self-admiration but Jesus continued, and praise your Father in heaven. Friends, I think working to promote Christian discipleship and growth is characteristic of a sound, good, biblical church. Uh, the ministry, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, uh, comes out of this series of sermons I preached at our church just on marks of a healthy church. And friends, the one I first became concerned with in my own life as a Christian was this one. It's biblical discipleship and growth, seeing people grow spiritually. And it was wondering why I didn't see more of that in my church as a young person that made me turn around and start trying to look at these other things and notice these other things. It was the absence of this. Friends, this is central. This is where it all comes together, us growing as Christians. In conclusion, what if we don't grow spiritually? What about Rob's case that we began with? 
You see something of why Rob wasn't growing as a Christian? Well, in fact, you perhaps see something of why I think Rob may not have been a Christian at all. Some of you may think, well, well, maybe Rob's a carnal Christian. I mean, it's Friday night. This would certainly not be the only room full of people in Phoenix to think of the idea of a carnal Christian tonight. My idea must cross others' mind. It's the idea that Christ is, so to speak, in the life, but not on the throne. Now, if that sounds like a strange idea, you can find in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writing, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, or as an older translation had it, as carnal. And some people have taken from this the idea that a worldly or a carnal Christian is another category that Paul was intending to establish. So you have your, your spiritual Christians, yay, and your carnal Christians, mm, you know. But a Christian nonetheless, you know, Christians. Well, you can read the passage that way in 1 Corinthians 3, but what I think is the more natural way to read it and what I think makes sense of Paul's point there to the Corinthians was that he was shaming them by speaking of these self-confessed Christians as worldly. So when he's calling them carnal Christians, as some translations have it, he was really using an intentional oxymoron, two words that don't fit together like hot ice, you know. He was telling them to get off the fence. Now, sadly, many people, by wrong use of this verse, have been convinced that they are some kind of truly saved person, some kind of real Christian, even though they have not really repented and believed. Friends, no wonder the Christian lives of so many are such messes if the churches which they are a part of are so confused. That's why I spend my time largely when I'm not at my church just going speaking to other pastors trying to help us think together biblically about what is a local church. In the third commandment of the Ten Commandments, God warned his people not to take his name in vain. Now, far from simply prohibiting profanity, this command prohibited taking God's name upon oneself in vain. I am a Christian. When really it's to no purpose. It's not for real. It's, it's for a wrong purpose. Well, friend, for us as a church, this church, whatever church you're coming from tonight, I think we have to realize when we look around that many churches today are sick. We mistake selfish gain for spiritual growth. We mistake mere excitement for worship. We think as long as tears are coursing down our cheeks when we're singing Amazing Grace or in Christ alone, then we must be real Christians when actually God would say, listen, friend, if you're committing adultery right now, I don't really care if you're emotionally moved when you sing that song. You're not fooling me. And all the people you are fooling won't matter on the last day. Friends, churches today are sick. Many churches are unwell. We treasure worldly acceptance rather than live so as to incur worldly opposition. Regardless of their statistical profiles, too many churches today seem unconcerned about the very biblical marks that should distinguish a vital growing church full of vital growing disciples.
So I, I talked to you about the church tonight because I think the health of the church should be the concern of all Christians. And if we're all called to follow Jesus, the local church is where we're called to do it. Our churches are to display God and his glorious gospel to his creation. We're to bring him glory by our lives together. Did you ever notice how the fruit of the spirit would be very difficult to discern, to discern on a desert island all by yourself? Most of those fruit of the spirit have to do with how you're interacting with others. There's something about our Trinitarian God that displays himself in interpersonal interactions. The local church is the shop window. It's the, the web page. Not really good at moving to the 21st century with my illustrations. Shop window was good in 19th century, but yeah, the 21st century, it's the web page. It's, the, it's that which makes public and displays these claims that God makes. Now, honestly, if I talked to you the break an hour ago, is that how you thought about the local church? When you thought of the topic of help me follow Jesus, in your own mind, did you really conceive of that mainly just about your individual discipleship? Or did you see that there is a necessary corporate component to that, that Jesus in his love has made us to know and experience as we reflect his own nature and character. Brothers and sisters, I pray that God will make our churches healthy churches, that he will help us to follow Jesus, that he will pour out his Holy Spirit on us for his glory and for our good. Let's pray for that now, let's pray.